This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Such Sights to Show, a all things Clive Barker podcast. I am Joe Lipset, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Brian Christopher. Hi, Brian. Hi, Joe. How are you today? I am doing okay. I am ready to talk about some horror shorts because, folks, we are back into books of blood territory. Um, I'm happy to be back and I'm glad we gave ourselves a break. Like I think people yeah. remember when we did volume three, I think we were a little burnt out and I mm-hmm. think that might've, uh, might've shaded our enjoyment of, of that particular volume. I will say, I think there's some definitely better stories in this one, or at least more enjoyable ones for me. But I, I think it had something to do with the fact that we had just done so many Barker short stories in a row that I think, uh, taking a little break and coming back was, was just what we needed. Yeah, I agree. I think that these are hard to read, like so many short stories back to back to back, because each one of these volumes has upwards of five to six stories in them. And some of these can be quite long. And well, I do admire Barker's ability to diversify his different types of stories. He's still one person. So the stories still sound like him for the most part. <laughs> Yeah, they're always going to be Barker stories, so there are going to be mm-hmm. some things that you're you're expecting. And yeah, I, th- I think uh, I definitely had that here where a certain element of his was missing in the first four and then came back with a vengeance in the last one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so Books of Blood, Volume 4, obviously written by Clive Barker, published July 1st, 1985. We should acknowledge that people may have this under a different name because, of course, it was published and sold originally as The Inhuman Condition, which is also the title of the first short story. So I'd be interested to find out, like, what goes behind publishers' decisions on how they're going to market this stuff and Mm -hmm. and how they name it. Because it just seems it seems needlessly confusing to release something with one name and then just kind of like bundle it up i don't know if maybe they were looking for like after a certain amount of time the name books of blood and clive barker became more synonymous so they just Mm -hmm. kind of wanted to package all into something people were familiar with but it just seems weird to just like it was this now it's this Yeah, and i'll confess i think the books of blood is so much more captivating i can't imagine that it was hard to sell people. Like if you're a horror enthusiast, you're seeing Clive Barker and then that title, that's an instant buy, right? Whereas something like the inhuman condition sounds like it could be a memoir title to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I honestly, I don't know. Maybe at the time they were trying to be like, well, maybe people are going to get like burnt out on this, this thing that just keeps kind of going on. But I don't know Mm. when you got something like books of blood with just like, it's evocative. You got the alliteration. Just don't, don't mess with that. Yeah, you got a good thing. Why are you messing with it? Yeah. (laughs) All right. So, Brian, walk us through this first story, The Inhuman Condition. This one (laughs) read a little familiar, didn't it? It did. So, yeah, The the Inhuman Condition, it's this 
group of punks, basically. Mm-hmm. Kind of think like uh, the the group of uh, was it Droogs from A Clockwork Orange on one of their outings, and they're they're given the business to this kind of seemingly poor old unhoused person, and they like they're beating him up, they're they're making fun of him, and at one point he drops this cord with three knots in it, and mm-hmm. one of the people, uh, Carney, who is probably the more reluctant of the four to engage in these kinds of activities. Uh, he's really into puzzles and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, and so he, he swipes it during this whole incident and he starts getting obsessed with untying these knots. Properly obsessed. He spends yep. all of his downtime working on these to the point where his colleagues have to drag him away to do other crimes and misdemeanors. <laughs> I mean, don't you hate when when someone you know someone in your uh, group of juvenile delinquents loses their ambition? There's nothing worse. <laughs> but yeah, he as he opens and figures these knots out, these weird like bestial entities come out and start yes. wreaking havoc. And again, we keep saying this sounds familiar. Um, you know, if you replace a puzzle box with a knot, you're kind of getting mm. some some similar vibes. The weird thing, though, that I will say up front is I, I do think this predates the Hellbound Heart. It does so, by a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. For for us, it's it's funny because we both said like this this we're getting deja vu. This is seeming a little repetitive, but like this is actually the the forerunner. So yeah, this is the precursor. Yeah, you could make the argument that the Hellbound Heart is the one that's getting repetitive. Uh, I wouldn't make that argument because I love it so much, but. Well, I think what this is, is if we do look at this as a trial or a test run towards something like the puzzle box, the Lament configuration, the Cenobites, it's an interesting piece, right? I definitely prefer the Hillbound Heart because I think it's more fleshed out and it's got some more interesting things to say. Mm-hmm. Like my my issue with this story is that the most interesting facets are not the characters. It is the knot and the demons that come out of it. And in some regards, I think that's why it feels so samey, samey, because we already had that, but we also had the rich characterizations of both the film and the short story in The Hellbound Heart and Hellraiser. So when I was reading this, I was just kind of like, okay, so this is where you're figuring out that you still need interesting characters to make this story work, because I just didn't really care about these kids. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to be said for the fact that, like, this is the this is kind of the prototype of that structure. And seeing that he evolved and got it right with the Hellbound Heart, it's good to kind of see him go in the right direction with that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think the biggest so much of this is is not super memorable. I actually remember no. when we were getting ready to record this morning, I'm thinking about like some of the really like great, there, there's some bangers in this volume. Mm-hmm. And then I realized like this first one, like I know it's called the inhuman condition. I can't for the life of me remember what the premise was. And I had to go back and remind myself on yeah. Wikipedia what actually happened because yeah, it's, it was interesting enough in the moment. Like it, it, mm-hmm. it had enough to pull me along through the story. But like, as soon as I was done, it kind of just like poofed. And just kind of went back into the ether. Yeah, I think part of that is because we're dividing our time between multiple different protagonists or points of view. So even though, as you said, Carney is kind of the de facto main one because he's the one who's solving the knots, 
he doesn't make a huge impression apart from the fact that he just isn't the same as the other guys. But we jump around between them, particularly when they're about to die because they pick up the the thread or, you know, the knot has just been solved and a demon comes after them. And I found the demon descriptions evocative and interesting, but not quite in the same way that we've seen even in other books of blood stories. So overall, like I didn't mind reading this, but it also wasn't memorable enough. Exactly. Yeah. It's funny too, because the way he describes the demons are kind of like these, at least the way I was reading it, like these kind of like globular, mm-hmm. almost un, almost as unfinished as the story seems to be in some way, or, or yeah. as, as not fully crafted. They're just kind of like, there and they're just yes. kind of these weird amorphous kind of like somewhat anthropomorphic beings they're yeah it's just they're not quite fully fleshed out for lack of a better term and mm-hmm. yeah i think it just all of it doesn't really there's there isn't that moment that just sticks in your brain like a lot of barker stories can do yeah i'll admit also the end of the short feels a little anticlimactic because we learn that the unhoused man has a twin brother mm-hmm. and they end up like running off and like presumably murdering each other but because we're stuck with carney's point of view he doesn't really see any of that so it just kind of feels like oh okay i guess i guess that got solved yeah but once again antagonistic brothers well yes He's 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 sowing the seeds for what will become, I think for us, we would say his his finest creation. There we go. All right. So let's let's take a hard turn into oh, almost wacky territory with the body politic. This might be Barker's silliest story. And it's so silly, but also highly enjoyable. I loved it. It was so great. You know, it was like it it was kind of one of those things I was just praying like, I hope this is supposed to be funny because it's mm-hmm. hilarious to me. Um, oh, yeah. And the, the more I'm seeing of it, it's like it, it's got to be. I don't think he's he's doing the Barker thing where he's he's playing it straight. You know, mm-hmm. he is he isn't doing like a wink or anything. But he is just letting, I think, the ludicrous concept speak for itself. And also, right. like, it is it is silly and hilarious, but, like, when you think about it, it's still kind of terrifying, too. Yes, that is the thing I want to acknowledge. Because, of course, as we've said numerous times, it's still a Barker story at heart. So even though he does do worries into whimsy or amusing or as we talked about last time on the pod even children's literature that have a kind of like hope and optimism he still always has this darkness to it so the body politic i mean you could do a one sentence summation which is essentially hands have a revolutionary uprising so we start with one man's left and right hands they want to free themselves because they're tired of doing this man's bidding so the right hand chops off the left hand to start this uprising and then from then on basically it just is kind of spreading the gospel where the hands will go around activating other hands and then they either start to murder their quote-unquote owners or bodies or they set about freeing other hands so at the end of the story i think there's this one incredibly evocative image of like hundreds of hands hanging Mm. out in a tree (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's almost like on the funny side it it's almost like barker's 
take on like an animal's attack movie where right. you know the this collective group of beings just you know for some reason gets fed up and just starts attacking people at will mm-hmm. so it's such a ridiculous concept and this idea of like you know these sentient hands just kind of ravaging the landscape is just mm-hmm. so funny to me but it's also like the hands themselves attacking is very slapsticky but yes. the moments where they're still attached and that idea of you losing control over your mm-hmm. own body parts is terrifying to me well and how would you fight back against it right exactly. because you would yeah. need your hand to help defend yourself but mm-hmm. your hand is actively working against you it has a literal mind of its own and then of course as the short story progresses we also learn that other body parts maybe are going to join this revolution so one man loses both of his legs under a train and then the kicker at the end of the story is that the legs are just hanging out uh-huh. yeah yeah it's this beautiful balance between silly and just absolutely freaky because it's just with so much that you can't control in the world you at least have the sense that like you can control you mm-hmm. but you know there are real life instances where that becomes no longer the case you know if if you get sick or if a part of your body has some kind of an injury or you know there are so many different disorders and injuries and conditions where you realize that you no longer have control over your body parts so you know this yeah. takes it to a ridiculous extreme but i think it taps into some very real fears that we have about when we no longer have control over our own bodies Mm -hmm. yeah yeah there is something really captivating about that and the little moments of horror within the short are very very effective Mm -hmm. so you're right it is it's a very nice tonal balance Mm -hmm. and we should acknowledge that this story has been adapted to screen so in 1997 mcgarris directed a apparently made-for-TV horror comedy. So it adapts this short as well as Stephen King's uh, Chattery Teeth. And a couple of people in the Horror Course Book Club watched it because we just talked about this. And they said that it is quite cheesy, but visually it doesn't look as bad as you might expect for a film from 1997 on a made-for-TV movie budget. Mm. And I'm also interested because I'm looking at the Wikipedia page and Matt Frewer plays mm-hmm. Charlie, the guys who's the guy whose hands first kind of start to rebel. I feel like that's a really good choice for someone right. to play Charlie. I'm I'm intrigued. Yeah, I mean, I guess if we wanted to, we could investigate this as a potential almost mini sode or something down the line. But admittedly, when I found out that this had been adapted my first thought was, of all the stories in this volume, <laughs> this would not have been the one I would have chosen to try and do. Yeah, especially on like a TV movie budget. Like that sounds like, you know, trying trying to do the visual effects in mm-hmm. a way that people would take a bunch of uh, sentient hands seriously, I feel right. like would be difficult to do on, mm-hmm. on TV budget. Right. Although bear in mind, at that point, 1997, we had had Adam's family. So we had we had seen hand, obviously working with a larger budget, but I'm interested to know if it plays with that kind of physical comedy, or if it manages to still maintain some of that horrific scariness. 
Yeah, like, is there the balance, or does Garrus just lean into the, the silliness of it all? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about the middle entry, Revelations, because I think you like this more than I did, and I'm interested to hear more. Yeah, I was I was at first a little underwhelmed, or I wasn't sure I was going to enjoy where this was going to go, because the mm-hmm. story starts off with Virginia, who is married to a traveling evangelist named John uh, and their assistant Earl. Mm-hmm. It starts off with seemingly like, again, going back to that, like, we've seen this kind of territory. You know, it's the evangelist yeah. who's very overbearing. and The repressed wife. Yes, yes, yes. So there's a lot of just like, okay, well, I've, I've seen this before. But when they get to, they stop at this very small town motel. Things take, for me, what I think is a very interesting turn. And again, mm-hmm. at first, I still didn't know how it was going to handle it because you start to get what seems like very disparate elements because they get to this motel, they're kind of doing their thing, and then they introduce Sadie and Buck, who we find out, and I actually needed to kind of go back and reread their introduction because I wasn't picking mm-hmm. up on it at first. They are ghosts who are yep. spending kind of a one-time only night back at this motel because what had happened uh, like 30 years ago, I think, when this story is, is made, mm-hmm. like 30 years prior, sometime in the 1950s, uh, Sadie murdered Buck because he was just like an uncaring lout. He was just kind of like the typical tropey, shitty husband. Mm-hmm. And she got tired of him, and she very kind of calmly, casually, and deliberately blows him away with a 38. And, yep. and then refuses to apologize refuses for Refuses to apologize, refuses to like try and plead insanity. She's just like, no, I know what I was doing. Do what you will. And so mm-hmm. they execute her. Yeah. And it also establishes within the the realm of the story that there's not really like a heaven and hell. There's an afterlife of some kind, um, mm-hmm. but it's a lot more kind of run of the mill and less extraordinary than you usually see the afterlife. Absolutely. And so in this case, they are given kind of like a one night only chance to come back and figure out like, was there something we could have done differently that would not have ended in Sadie shooting Buck. Well, I feel like that's what Sadie thinks they're doing. And then Buck just wants to get laid. Yeah. Because he hasn't changed at all. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, she learns very quickly that that was the only way this was going to end. Because Buck is terrible. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like this story is kind of about women putting up with terrible men. And I think they do such a good job at building these moments of dread where you think the women are going to succumb or get overpowered by these like really awful men. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, John, the evangelist is like very full of himself, extremely narcissistic. He thinks he's a tool of God, you know? And so he gets very, very bold and very bombastic and very threatening in the way Mm -hmm. he approaches Virginia. And Buck is very, sexually predatorial but Mm -hmm. with both of these you kind of learn especially with buck that he is ineffectually predatorial for lack of a better term he's not good at it because he is so ineffectual like he's a terrible person and don't Mm -hmm. get me wrong he is dangerous and if given the opportunity he would do horrible things but in life sadie shoots him in the afterlife 
Virginia, who uh, we realized through the course of the story can actually catch glimpses of these uh, of these ghosts. Mm-hmm. He catches her. So <laughs> I guess I need to back up just a little bit. So we, we learn through the course of this night that Buck is really just looking to get laid again. And when he sees Sadie has no interest, he starts to try and get, you know, he starts to try and assault her. She basically says, like, I'm dead. I don't want to have anything to do with this. You can't hurt me. I'm going to walk away. So mm-hmm. he starts to try and prey on Virginia, who he catches on the wrong day because she has been. Well, she's been pushed to the edge. Yeah, right? She's been pushed too far by by John and him coming in. We learn that he is able to partially materialize. So he is able to touch her, but it's not like uh, consistent. He's not able to do it at will. Mm-hmm. So he attempts to have his way with her sexually. She gets fed up. She grabs the gun that in another kind of funky little side like plot thread, uh, Laura May is the daughter of the motel owner. She has been there her whole life, including the night that Sadie shot Buck. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of like a a serial killer aficionado a little bit. She kept the gun as a little girl. No one suspected her. Um, And so she had this thing since the fifties. And so Virginia finds this gun. And when Buck is advancing on her, she tries to shoot him, but he's a ghost. So it goes through Buck and hits John in the neck and Mm -hmm. he winds up dying. And in a, an interesting turn, you know, this whole time Virginia has been, like she's at her wits end. She can't deal with John. Now she's getting attacked by this ghost. And also Sadie has kind of been like trying to give her advice through all of this. It's very devil angel. Yes. Yeah. But I feel like only the devil is there like in a good way. <laughs> it, you know, Sadie is just the devil. She's trying to like, here's, here's how you can do what you need to do and get away with it. And I think what I enjoy about the ending so much is that, Sadie's like learn from my mistakes. Like right. I, I gave absolutely no remorse. I did not try to defend myself. I wound up getting executed. You could mm-hmm. be a legend if you play right. this right. And Virginia, like, she goes for it, and she she the the cops come in. Virginia, I think her her first words when they come in is the devil made me do it, and yep. she she gives like the craziest smile that she can muster. I don't know. I love that. I love this idea that like she's getting mentored by by a murderer from 30 years ago mm-hmm. to kind of like get some comeuppance for these men who genuinely deserve it. So I, I don't know. I, all of this for me was very satisfying. Yeah. I mean, I'll admit even just listening to you try to relate back what happened like i think this is the longest story of the bunch mm-hmm. except for maybe the age of desire maybe no i think this one's even a little bit longer just a few pages like it's funny though all of these are around the same length none of them are super longer than any of the others but i think this one is of the group the the longest one yeah and i like the characterizations i like the parallels between sadie and virginia and to a lesser extent laura may I felt like it was almost more convoluted than it needed to be. I think the Laura May stuff is where this short loses me a little bit because it just feels like yet another woman who is being 
I guess, controlled or kept in place because, you know, her father, the motel owner, barely a character, but we're told that he's very drunk. He does like to keep tabs on her. So, you know, she tries to seduce Earl, the sort of manager of John, and that's part of what sets John off is because he he realizes people are having premarital sex or extramarital sex because mm-hmm. Earl is actually married. But even those kinds of details are like, there's just too much happening here for what is essentially a ghost guiding a woman to free herself via murder. So <laughs> I love the end of this because the idea of Sadie mentoring Virginia and even encouraging her to learn from her mistakes and... I got the impression that Sadie might even stick with her and keep Virginia company if she goes to a a sanitarium or an institution or something like that. I like that part, but getting there felt like, ooh, there's just too much of everything. Like this one needed to me a firmer edit. Which is funny because I'm usually the person who's like, this was too long, shave stuff (laughs) off. For me, it all worked. It, it seemed like it was all building to something. And I think mm-hmm. I think that's where for me, even if there is stuff with like, I think you could make the argument that like Laura May makes for these kind of weird like divergences from the main plot. Mm-hmm. But for me, there was momentum. Like there's a lot going on. It's kind of all over the place, but it's all as we're getting towards the end, it's pushing this sense of like anticipation or like how is this all going to resolve and so i did find myself like for me this was a bit of a page turner where i'm just like okay and it's barker too so like no one's really safe so i don't know like is this gonna have a happy ending i don't know how this is gonna go it does have a feeling of unpredictability to it. And I like yeah. that it's a single location. You know, everybody sort of trapped at this motel as the storm is building. You know, everybody knows something is coming. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's the thing. It's it's so chaotic. Like having all of these seemingly disparate elements, like it's just, it's anarchy. And seeing how that's going to resolve and seeing if there's any way that like things can end well for Virginia. And I think given the circumstances, like this is probably the best ending she could have had. Agreed. Um, yeah. You know, at least in a, at least in a Clive Barker story. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the fourth story, ironically enough, is the shortest of the volume by far. It's called yeah. down Satan. And I'll confess that this one would have worked so much better for me if it hadn't been longer. It's a short about a rich man who is reclusive. He decides to entice Satan into showing himself by building a giant, more or less mausoleum for him. It's like a hotel museum that's partially underground and a bunch of people die there's like specialty torture rooms and he ends up like locking himself in there and ending up sort of trapped to his own devices it's so visually compelling like i could really imagine this as an almost citizen cane of satanism kind of (laughs) adaptation and then it just ends and i was like okay you have told a complete story But there were so many more details I wanted. So this one was, it's good. I just wanted so, so, so much more. I think for me, the reason it works being so short, and this this isn't just the shortest of the collection. I think this is one of the shortest ones of all the stories we've read so far. And like by by far, it's maybe like 10 pages. Mm -hmm. And I think why I enjoy it 
being as short as it is, is it gives this very like almost urban legend like anecdotal way of of telling the story. It's mm-hmm. almost like someone who I really don't know all the details of this because they've been lost to time or nobody yes. can really figure out what the hell happened. So because anybody who goes in dies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it's almost from that point of view of someone who it's like, we'll never know what really happened in there. Mm-hmm. That being said, if he ever wanted to do like a full-length novel where you do like an omnipresent kind of narrator, mm-hmm. and this this was just this vast like hundreds of page thing, I would read the hell out of that. Like right. I would love to read something that just spent a lot of time in this vast satanic cathedral. Mm-hmm. But I appreciate because I, I think I remember what was it the toll where we talked about where its problem was it was too long as a short story and not long enough as like mm-hmm. a novel. I think down Satan av- avoids that where like if it had been a little bit longer and kind of got into details but not gave enough i think this could have fallen in that category so this is kind right. of like what i think for me the toll could have been had they went in like a, a better direction and made it shorter this is mm. kind of that so it's kind of like i like that it's this short but if they were going to do something longer then i would want them to really lean into like yeah. making this a full-on novel yes and it would need to be explored in depth mm-hmm. absolutely yeah and and I should acknowledge that there's I made it sound like it was a bad thing that I was left wanting. I think that's a mark of a good story. It's something oh, that captivates you, it excites you, and then you're disappointed when there isn't more. So I don't think it's a failing of the story. It's just a personal preference. I was so enraptured by this. I just yeah, I wanted a longer version of it because I wanted to spend more time going into it. And I think it even it does tease into some of the things that we talk about in other Barker properties later on, right? Like it has elements of the Scarlet Gospels in it. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, it is fascinating to read these out of order where you get to see how he has built on some of these ideas in longer formats in other texts. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, yeah, that that leave you wanting more element and and seeing where he he may be investigated like he's such a good world builder so mm-hmm. you know the, i think for me that wanting more is that you know you know if he had really dug into this like the the vivid imagery and what he could have done with this would be so fascinating um yeah so yeah i, I definitely get that sense of like oh man i'd love to just spend a lot of time with this concept mm-hmm so that takes us into the last story and <laughs> content warning for extreme sexual assaults. The Age of Desire. So this is about a character named Jerome who has volunteered to make some easy money by going into a lab where they're exploring arousal and libidos. And he ends up getting injected with something that basically turns him into an extreme sexual predator like his brain overheats with desire to the point where he is all consuming sex yeah he is sexual id like that's yeah, he is nothing literally. but that yeah yeah and then he just goes on a tear killing people fucking them to death doing horrible things <laughs> until yeah. he eventually just expires because his body can no longer handle it and and this was one where where I was kind of hinting that 
with the previous stories, there was a lot of like the the one thing that was I don't want to say missing, but the thing that that wasn't present. Not that I was like, oh man, where is it? It was mm-hmm. that that thing that Barker likes to do, where he combines you know sex and kind of yeah. violence and grotesque imagery in a way that makes us feel uncomfortable you know so that's something he really enjoys doing so i'm like man we really haven't had that and then i started reading this and i'm like Bam. well i spoke too soon he just put it all here right at the very end brian oh man and it's ah, oh, it's this is this is one of those areas where like i want to be very clear when i'm coming into this saying like this is my mm-hmm. take on it and this is the way i processed and consumed it uh this is not by any means if people had like different points of view or yeah basically just this is this is the cis white man uh and and his interpretation but for as confrontational and as uncomfortable and horrible as this story was mm-hmm. it didn't feel like it was without merit and yeah I, oh, uh, this it it just I, I always get a little weird. Like, what's the best way to talk about this? But well, here let let's take a stab at this. I think that this is by far the most divisive of all of the stories in this volume. Maybe even like the last couple because it is all about sexual violence right like Mm -hmm. this is a man who is preying on people who don't even know that they are objects of affection because this man will quite literally fuck anyone and everything so there is a Mm -hmm. male rape sequence at one point jerome sticks his penis into a crack in a wall and we get a description (laughs) of like what it does to his penis and it Uh is it's deeply upsetting right and yeah, depending on your relationship to sexual violence, depending on how you identify, this is a very confronting story, but it's also incredibly well written. It's really captivating. Like, I think it's a button pushing in ways that a lot of, like, you could never adapt this story. And mm-hmm. I don't think most writers would even attempt to write something like this nowadays. But like this is this is not an easy one to read, but it also no. I can't imagine was an easy one to write. Yeah. I think I get the sense that he didn't do any of this casually or flippantly. Like yeah. no. I, he to a degree, I feel like he also took care. And again, if <laughs> if anybody's listening to this and they have a different interpretation, um, I would definitely like enjoy hearing it. But there seemed to be a deliberate choice where when it came to women getting sexually assaulted, he did Mm -hmm. not go into depth. It was more hinted at, or you see like the after effects and don't get me wrong. Like the after effects are horrible. horrible. Yeah. But when it comes to a scene where it is graphically happening in real time, he is doing it between two men. And I, Mm -hmm. I think there's something to be said for the fact that a man like writing that, scene between two men and not trying to like muster the emotions that might be going through a woman's mind when something like that happens i think shows Mm -hmm. at least some degree of care with this and i think he he also uses that moment because it's a it is a very harrowing scene where jerome gets found by these two cops and he sexually assault he rapes one of the cops and you kind of inhabit the mind of the cop when it's happening. And he, he talks about the, that, mm-hmm. that conflict between, I don't want this, 
but there is an amount of like he can't control how his body is reacting to it, which yeah. then just compounds kind of the the misery and the the shame from the act. Mm-hmm. And so I think he is he's doing something there where he is kind of showing how destructive this act can be, but he's yeah. doing it without trying to inhabit the mind of, of a woman or someone who he really has no business doing the point of view for. Mm-hmm. So I think there's something to be said for that. But again, like if I don't, you know, nobody has to agree with that. So there were a couple of different responses. This one was obviously a big topic when we met for the Horror Quarters Book Club. Mm-hmm. We had one person where this was their first time reading, Clive Barker. Oh, and boy. she said, I'm not sure about this story. Like, I'm not sure if I want to continue reading him if this is indicative of what he writes. And we were all kind of like, well, like we we tried to couch it. We were making excuses, but we did say, you know, this is a collection of shorts, right? Like we almost said, you owe it to yourself to try and read some other ones. And we, we tried to caution like this is the rapiest possible story that we have yeah. read from him in the entire four volumes that we have read. But then me and one other gay identifying member of the group, we did have really interesting reactions to particularly this rape scene and just how confronting it is, but also how almost audacious it is to talk about male rape in 1985, but then also acknowledge the pleasure that can be derived from it feels so subversive, so counterculture, so underground. Like, I don't know. It It's the moment in this short story, which is filled with moments that are all talking points, very buzzy. You know, people are going to have a reaction to this story. But for me, that is such a weird standout moment. And... As a queer person, I was so taken aback by the acknowledgement that male sexual intimacy, even rapey sexual intimacy, can have this pleasure to it. Like, it was not at all what I expected to happen from this encounter, and it was written in a completely different way. Yeah, I mean, there is there's some conversation to be had there about kink and the idea Mm -hmm. that you know for some people consensual non-consent is a kink yeah i mean one thing that is also interesting this isn't just the story of jerome like you know we're we're getting other people's perspectives as they're trying to hunt him around the city but part of this experiment also started in a lab where they were doing the same experiments on monkeys they clearly were not ready to move into a human testing stage and and these scientists got more than what they bargained for as a result. But, you know, we, we get updates about how Jerome is probably going to die, even if they don't catch him in the near future. He's going to expire because of what it's doing to him. And they know that because they're seeing it modeled in these chimps that were also part of the experiment. And it's not explicitly stated, but I did think there was a power in the messaging about how sex just totally commands our brains right like Mm -hmm. you get so horned up and it's it's all you can think about to the point where these chimps were like copulating in all sorts of unorthodox patterns you know like group sex and necrophilia and all these other sort of quote-unquote disturbing things but like you could not get them to stop because they were so fixated and i thought 
this is a really interesting point of view that Barker is developing, which is just how obsessed we become about carnal pleasure, how it drives us to seek out and do things that we wouldn't normally do, including dangerous subversive acts. Yeah, yeah. And how if completely unleashed, how destructive it can be if, if yeah. we are if we don't find healthy outlets and we don't find ways of self-regulating it mm-hmm. is destructive both to the people around us and to ourselves and it quickly blurs the line between sensuality and violence and it mm-hmm. actually kind of reminded me it made me think of uh, shivers from david cronenberg right you know yeah. where, where people just turn into like these violent sex zombies basically mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of where you're almost seeing like patient zero for for what how that would have turned out if that was something contagious like it was or communicable like it was in shivers that's what we would be seeing here um but because it's not you know it can't be passed from person to person it just Mm -hmm. kind of like it it stays with it stays with jerome and i think there's also something to be said about the fact that like he didn't ask for like yes he put himself in a bad position but Mm -hmm. like he is for all the horrible things he does here, he is also one of the victims of it because this was done to him. He did not choose to be this person and Mm -hmm. it ultimately destroys him. It does. Yeah. Yeah. This one, it is dark. It is confronting. But to me, this sounds so fucking terrible, Brian, but this is almost classic Clive Barker. Like this is not going to be for everyone maybe it's not for anyone (laughs) Mm -hmm. but when i finished this story like this is the one that ends the volume and i just thought god damn what a fucking powerhouse yeah i mean this is barker's ability to confront you with uncomfortable sexual elements at -hmm. its most distilled so yeah Yeah. i think there's something to be said about the, the person you were talking to from your book club i don't think there are any any of the stories that I've read by him that go to this length, mm-hmm. but these undercurrents undercurrents of this are in a lot of his stories. Truly. And so it's, yeah, this is, mm, it, it is it's one where it's, if, if, <laughs> if any of this is in the least bit triggering for you, I would say stay as far away from it as possible. Oh yeah. But if, if you are able to get through it, I think there are, there mm-hmm. are things to be taken away from this that, yeah, that do there are merit. rewards to be found. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of, could anyone else write this? And I don't know. And I don't even know that Clive Barker could write this even 10 years later. Like, this mm. is so seminal and of the moment. And yeah, it's bold. It's very, very bold, but also... If this is not your jam, stay the fuck away because it is a lot. Yeah. And it, it, it's so weird because I, I feel like so many times talking about a story like this, so many people, when they try and go down this road, it just becomes very edge lordy and like right. shocking for, for mm-hmm. the sake of shocking people. And I don't, yep. I don't get anything out of stories like that. Um, you know, and, and yeah, there's just something that is more thoughtful and deliberate about the way he does this even though it is such a like it's about the lack of thoughtfulness and deliberateness Mm -hmm. that comes about by that kind of like unfiltered sexual ego that yeah you know the the characters in it especially jerome 
don't have any thoughtfulness. And but I think he writes all of that with a deliberate thoughtfulness that I think is what gives it some some merit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> I do feel like I'm, I'm starting. I think I've said like the same thing 12 times, just in different words. <laughs> yeah. This is a tough one to talk about. Cause it, it, it honestly, it makes me feel uncomfortable to talk about a story like this and say like, Hey, there's merit in it, you know? Right. Everybody <laughs> go and check it out. No, don't. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, I feel like I'm in this weird like cycle where it's like, I'm trying to explain myself, but also like allow for the fact that like, <laughs> I might be completely wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. I will. I will not do it a thirteenth time. Uh, okay. Suffice to say that I got stuff out of it. There we go. Yes, your mileage may vary, but yes. those who get something out of it, they may find they get a lot out of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Brian, if people had a very different reaction to the Age of Desire and they want to talk to you about it. How would they get in touch? Uh, you can get a hold of me on both Twitter and Instagram at Evil Taylor Hex. And honestly, this is one <laughs> it will make me extremely uncomfortable to talk about, but I think the discussion about it would also be interesting and fulfilling. So if mm-hmm. if you do if you do want to reach out and discuss, uh, in all honesty, please do. Right. And if people want to get a hold of me, you can reach me at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And of course, we'll thank the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad Network for letting us talk extensively about sexual assaults. <laughs> um, Mr. Brian, let's move on to different pastures. Let's talk about outsiders next time, because the time has finally come to talk about Cabal, a.k.a. Mm. the novella that is the source material for Nightbreed. Yeah, I mean, we've we've talked about t- two-thirds of, uh, of Barker's filmography so far, so I think it's, mm-hmm. it's finally time to get this last one in. And I am I'm looking forward to looking at this specifically through the lens of, of the discussions that we have, because, uh, spoiler alert, this is one that I, I like but don't necessarily love. Mm-hmm. But I do find that when I talk to you about some of these things, it, it pulls out layers that makes me appreciate all of this stuff a lot more. So I'm looking forward to, to looking at this again through that lens. Absolutely. Yeah. And folks, we recognize that there's a lot of material associated with this particular title. So we're going to start the discussion. This will probably be multi-episode in the making. So we're just going to start with Cabal, and then we will probably move on to the film in its different iterations, and then any kind of additional source material. But if you want to reach out with recommendations about things that we should definitely pay attention to, because some of you folks were very helpful when we were talking about Hellraiser and the Hellbound Heart, giving us comic suggestions and spinoffs and that kind of stuff. That's how we found the Sherlock Holmes one. Yeah. So if you have recommendations of Cabal slash Nightbreed adjacent texts, please do let us know. Yeah, y'all have been awesome with it. I mean, the reason this show is longer than three episodes right. is because <laughs> is because of the different suggestions you gave and that kind of like just got us percolating into seeing more and more stuff that we could get into for Barker. So yeah, we would love to get your input on on some of the, the Nightbreed-centric stuff that's out there. Yeah, no one's told us to shut up yet, so we just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we'll see. Well, maybe we'll get canceled after this episode. Who knows? <laughs> uh, but uh, until we come back for Cabal, Mr. Brian, keep an eye on your hands. Yeah, I'm twiddling my thumbs and... No, stop. Stop. No, no. <laughs> stop ah, it. Stop it. Oh, ah. okay. <laughs> Squad.